0: Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lairhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight is Bowery Boys and Dead End Kids Night. And our co-host is film historian, journalist, and super film fan, Craig Edwards, whose writing credits include Psychotronic Video Magazine, The Daily Grindhouse website, and local Wil- Wilmington, North Carolina entertainment guide, Encore. Appropriately, he loves to talk about the Bari Boys and Dead End Welcome, Craig.
1: Thank you very much, Steve. It's an honor to be here. Delighted to be your guest tonight.
0: So let's, let's talk about you from the earliest times. Uh, I always ask this of all my guests because I always get 10,000 different versions of the story. Uh, were you a member of a film-going family?
1: I was. My parents apparently hated uh, babysitters because they took me to films that children probably shouldn't go to. I was taken to Little Big Man. I was taken to The Godfather, Papillon, Boy, that decapitation had an effect on me at five or whatever I was at the time. But um, we didn't do a lot of Disney and things. So I started seeing the big and important films of the 70s, especially with them. And that combined with what was airing on television at the time and a horror host named Seymour out of Los Angeles was my first introduction to the Universal Studios Monsters. So all of that combined into you know, just a, a life that was going to be lived watching movies.
0: So you had no trouble watching horror movies?
1: No. Uh, uh, every once in a while, the parents would tell a story about me being so scared that they would have, kind of have to take me out of the room and, and put me to bed. Um, I remember Kingdom of the Spiders airing on one of the networks, uh, put me under, and it t- taught me that I was an arachnophobe. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the Universal Monsters always were fun. And although they had some scary moments, even at that age, uh, I fell in love with them immediately, especially with Seymour being my guide into that world.
0: Sure, sure. Um, I remember Seymour. I, I had a, a kind of a turbulent relationship with horror films uh, when I started going to the movies in the late 50s. I couldn't watch horror films. They just had too much of an effect on me. My friends would watch me leave the room. I'd sit in the lobby until the next feature came on. I could handle science fiction though. And gradually, after seeing The Day the Earth Stood Still and The Blob and Forbidden Planet and Attack of the Crab Monsters and all <laughs> those cheesy AIP movies, I kind of kind of became more courageous and I could handle the horror movies. But to this day, I I don't like really grisly horror movies with buckets of blood. You know, it's uh, I kind of my the movie that I probably have have the most fondness for is Robert Wise's The Haunting 1963, which has literally no visual horror whatsoever and yet scares the living crap out of you.
1: Absolutely. Love that movie. (laughs) What, and that was one that I was introduced to by reading Stephen King's Dance Macabre, where he espoused its virtues uh, long before I had a chance to see it. Of course, growing up, uh, when you and I did, seeing movies back at that time when you were that young, it was hard to see things because you had to wait for a local channel to program. Right. In those cases, no home video, et cetera. So that's why, like, The Haunting took a long time for me to finally see, but... but it's one that I don't care who builds it up or how much it's, it's, you know, espoused and touted. It's a great film. And you're going to be scared. Now, regardless, even 60 ish years later. So.
0: So I'm curious when you got your first VCR, do you remember what your first uh, pre pre-record was what you purchased?
1: Uh, purchased was actually I, I was gifted The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's first film, oh. um, because I ran a mission for the video store owner to check out a rival's uh, across the town square. I checked out his inventory, and really, this this gentleman who I ended up working for it was my first job. um He didn't want he he bought the top ten of what was renting at the time when he went into video, and he and he got The Evil Dead. But people were ringing back and talking about how gory it was, and he didn't really want it on the shelf. So he got a double out of it. He got to know what the guy across the way had on his shelves, and he got rid of that movie without having to throw it away. So I was gifted that. I purchased Basket Case, which was uh, Frank Henenlotter's early 80s film. But the rentals, uh, I rented Xanadu and Halloween. Um, Those were my two two, and they were on beta. That's how far back I go for rentals.
0: Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was good, I've always been good friends with Bill Malone, uh, who's a fine director, owned mm-hmm. Robbie the Robot for many years, which he purchased for almost nothing from a defunct museum and sold for I think 4.3 million dollars a few years ago. Wonderful. Talk about the prop of all props, but I remember vividly before Betacam and before VHS. Bill showed me Halloween on a reel to reel video tape recorder. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that goes way back. Uh, of course, I've always had a fondness for John Carpenter's score for that movie, which I think is very iconic. So, you, the topic today the Dead End Kids, the East Side Kids, the Tough Guys, or whatever you call them, I knew okay. them as the Bowery Boys, is such a fun topic for me to get into. What, what is your earliest memories of these guys?
1: My brother introduced me to them. He, had, he must have been watching them already, but they were airing. We were living in Southern Illinois, just over the river from St. Louis, Missouri. And they were airing on a St. Louis channel, KDNL channel 30. And they were either on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings in a 90 minute slot, uh, 1030 to noon. And so it became a ritual for like a summer that every Sunday or Saturday, whichever it was, we would get together. And this was a rare chance. My brother was eight years older than me, so it was a rare opportunity to get him to not chase girls or whatever he was doing, but to actually spend some time with me at that time. So it had every possible kind of positive effect on me in that I got to see these wonderful films, but I also got to spend time with my brother. So locked in again as a a fan right from the get-go.
0: Now, I, I didn't realize that I was reading up a little bit on particularly Leo Gorsi and Hans Hall, who are, of course, pictured here, uh, that they go back all the way to 1937. And I guess the release of Dead End was which was a, isn't that a Humphrey Bogart movie?
1: It is. And of course, they had started back on the other coast with the Broadway show. And Leo Gorsi kind of stumbled into it. He was accompanying his brother David to the audition, and somebody didn't want to audition suddenly, and they bumped him into giving a giving it a shot. And from that, from that accident, we get almost 90 movies, all these serials, all of the, you know, all of this history going 20 plus years.
0: What what do you think? What do you think drew you to these movies initially? What 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 was it?
1: Well, I've always liked repeating characters. I have no problems with sequels. Um you can ring you can beat a, a dead horse forever as far as I'm concerned as long as the films maintain some kind of quality. And just the idea that you knew these characters and it was kind of fun you could almost picture the writing staff kind of sitting around and going you know, what, what's the next crazy thing we can get these guys into or location or job. And, and, and you can, after Gorsy leaves, there's a quality dip, in my opinion, but, but for the most part, those 48 films of the the actual strict Bowery Boys films, pick one, they're all fun. There, there's not any that you just look and go, well, that one, I mean, they really had jumped the shark by then or anything like that. So, while they're not highbrow, they're just fun films and they always have been. I loved them as a child. I love them as an adult. I'm I'm going back through the entirety of the filmography again, watching them one more time again.
0: Well, you know, we are we were too uh, young for Abbott and Costello, although obviously you can discover them all now they're all available in home video. Uh, but in my mind, the Bowery Boys were kind of low-budget Abbott and Costello.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And and the yeah. shtick between Gorsi and Hall being the forefront and that duo being yeah very much an Abbott and Costello feel, because the other, even though it's the Bowery Boys, the other guys are really not given a lot of screen time in most of them. They're mainly extras in the background of most of them. Really, it's just these two doing their their sticks.
0: I'm going to pull up a nice shot of um of Leo um L- Leo Gorsi I, <laughs> I without that hat I think Leo Gorsi is just not Leo Gorsi but that face and that hat what did, does that hat have a particular name is that does it does it, the way it's uh, uh folded up in the front like that I, don't I feel like it
1: does, but I'm not sure. It's not a pork
0: pie. I think a pork pie no. is a different kind of hat. Yeah. But, uh, Leo Gorsi's name in the series was Terence Aloysius Mahoney, but everyone called him Slip. And what I particularly liked about Leo Gorsi um, was his, mis- or his malapropisms, you know, the way he would come up with the, just the wrong word, and he was just
1: really funny for what I'm reading and what I've read about them they um I don't know how many of those were in the script it uh, I got the idea that he would go through they would give him the script and he would go through and find words that he could then adjust himself or at least that's the legend that that they weren't directly in the script mis you know misidentified so to speak, and that he did that but it is it's a wonderful thing and I mean from, you know, Norm Crosby, who is probably the greatest Malaprop comic, um, had to have watched these guys to have decided to take that as his his uh, method of comedy.
0: Yogi Berra, too, maybe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: do you have a favorite of the bar I mean, they're all so much fun. Do you have a particular favorite?
1: Well, the Bowery Boys meets the Monsters was a big one because that was, of course, um, you know, their Evan Costello Meet Frankenstein, um, not quite up to the level of that one. Uh, I am also a huge Evan Costello fan, but um, but anytime you get the scary stuff mixed with the comedy, uh, yeah, I'm 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 there for it. So that one's got to be the one for me.
0: Me too, mm-hmm. me too. I I I just uh, you know, it's funny. To this day, Saturdays still have a special draw for me, especially on TV, because I have the fondest memories of being in my eights, nines, tens, and putting on, you know, Saturday was known, of course, as Cartoon Day. They're all the cartoons. But it was also the time to have fun with people like the Bahari Boys. I, I kind of rhyme them with Saturday afternoon entertainment. In fact, TCM recently ran a bunch of Bowery Boy movies and I caught up with some of them and they brought back such great memories.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And all of those franchise pictures, of the comedy franchises at the time, which was kind of the precursor to our sitcoms before television, you see these repeating characters showing up three and four times a year uh, through long runs. You know, these guys for 12 years and 48 films. Um, but you had, you know, Ma and pa Kettle, you had Francis, you had Evan Costello, all of these franchises, and they were the purview of the the, the weekend film programming on all of my local channels. So you were getting something fun. Um, you know, they would run several of one of the franchises, and then they'd switch up, and it would be one of the others for a while. But it was a wonderful way to be introduced to all of these various um, comedy teams and such.
0: Sure, sure. 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 I'm going to put Leo back on there because I want to talk a little bit more about Leo. What, what do we know about Leo Garcy?
1: You know, stumbled into the job, but after he had, after they had done dead end, they were taken out to Hollywood to make the film. And I, I mean, it is irresistible that they ran riot on the studio lot. So much so that the head of the studio sold their contract to Warner Brothers because he didn't want to deal with them anymore. They crashed a truck. They did all kinds of antics. And it's amazing to think that the same things we were watching in the films, they were doing in real life because they really were kind of these guys to some extent, especially the younger version. And then they went to Warner's and they continued through all those Other incarnations that you mentioned, the Dead End Kids, the Little Tough Guys, et cetera, and breaking up into different groupings and things. But then, mid forties, Leo and his agent Jan Grippo decide to revamp into the Bowery Boys. So he's the reason there is a Bowery Boys, along with Jan Grippo, and or Jan Grippo. I'm not sure. I've never heard that said, but maybe it's he
0: was upset that he wasn't making enough money. Correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. So. He wanted to take over the top spot in terms of being the producer, and um, and his agent handled that. Grippo's uh, name is the one that presents each film of the Bowery Boys. Um, he doesn't take a producing credit. I don't think you see his name in that aspect, but he was certainly handling it. And, you know, the nepotism of having his brother and his father involved, um, you know, it was a family affair for them. Um, and, and of course, the very sad uh, turn of events when when um, Bernard Gorcy, his father, playing Louis Dombrowski, uh, passed away uh, into the 50s, the early 50s and it just took the heart out of Leo and Leo couldn't continue. He did one more film and it um, you know story goes and I, I believe it's true that you can kind of tell he was drinking throughout the production of that film which is Crashing Las Vegas and After that, he left the series, but the the studio was making money and probably had a contract. So they simply bumped Hall up to the top spot, bring in um, Stanley Clement to kind of fill in as a very poor man's Slip Mahoney. And although he was playing a different character and they ran through another seven or eight films. And then finally, they, they, you know, they just weren't, I guess, making money anymore. So the studio stopped production. But what a run for Gorsi from 38 to 50, well, 15 years-ish, something like that. Well, was but, totally the driving force from the 40, mid-40s. Zone.
0: Well, Bernard Gorsi, who I learned later on, obviously, was his father, was such a great little comic character in that series. I mean, the, the, obviously, many of the films took place in Louis' sweet shop, which was great. I wanted to go in there because the concept of a sweet shop didn't quite... Uh, work in West Los Angeles at that time, although they were popping up elsewhere. Uh, I, my, one of my fondest memories, I'm not sure if I know which film it's from, you'll probably know, but there is a film where where Louis comes to a gambling casino and he's wearing a big cowboy hat. Yes. And uh, do you remember which show that was?
1: Oh, um, I'm not.
0: I'm not going to The but... concept of this little guy from New York, wearing this, it was like a thirty-gallon cowboy hat. That's right, and he's he's shooting craps and he's getting killed at craps, which I really identified with much later because I usually play craps and I usually get killed at craps. <laughs> <laughs> but it was only later on that I discovered that was, of course, Leo's father, and uh, I think his brother also was a Bowie boy. Correct,
1: David Gorsey, Yeah, one of the, um, and he's not all the way through. He leaves somewhere along the way. As those the as the lesser lights did, they kind of shifted around. You had Gabe Gabriel Dell, you had uh, William Benedict and um David Condon, I believe was one of them. And they kind of were interchangeable and, and jumped around. And 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 let's I mean, I see what appears to be maybe key Luke there in Barry Blitzkrieg. Um and they had um Mantan Moreland, right? Um no, I'm sorry. Sunshine Sammy Morrison, excuse me. That's what I was thinking of. So they, they also had a bit of um of uh, some racial diversity in the days when that wasn't really seen much. Now, were the presentations of those characters, you know, uh as forward-thinking as we like them to be in 2024? No. But that they were in the films at all um was I think a positive thing. And I believe that that probably Gorsi and Grippo had, you know, some colorblindness. I don't think they were trying to check off boxes, so to speak. I think that they had those people in because they were talented and they fulfilled a role that added to the films that they were in.
0: Now we know these films now as being low budget films.
1: Any idea how low budget they were? I was trying to look that up. There's not a lot of info about that, but I wouldn't, I can't believe they were longer than two week shoots and maybe just one week. And they were putting them out for a year. So every three months they were probably getting together and, and shooting one um, probably low six figures would be my, my guess. Um, a lot of stock footage, a lot of the the places that they're supposedly going were represented by just, you know, some grainy stock footage shots. Crashing Las Vegas being one. There's like one shot of Las, uh, Las Vegas strip type uh, shot. And all the rest of it takes place in interior sets in the in the casino that they're in. Were, so, were, any, were
0: any of them shot in color?
1: No. No, all the way through in, in The Money, I believe, was the last film in 1958, still in black and white. Had they gone on a few more years, I think color would have come in in the early 60s. Had they gone another four or five years, I think they would have had to make the move to color. That alone might have been something that might have ended the series, though, um, because of the cost of color film at the time. I mean, even I mean, even Hope and Crosby did uh, Road to Hong Kong in the early 60s, 62. That's still in black and white, uh, even though they had Road to Valley in color uh, 10 years previously.
0: Well, over, over, at, over at Columbia, uh, the Three Stooges features were being done. I'll never forget... My favorite Three Stooges feature, uh, the Three Stooges meet Hercules. Uh, and the credit at the beginning of the movie said, filmed in glorious black and white.
1: Love it. <laughs> I love it. I do love those films. Uh, the Outlaws is coming is my favorite. Uh, early Adam West adding to the fun.
0: There you go. There you go. Well, I'm going to put up another one of my favorites. Hansal. Uh, oh. I, I remember actually seeing Hall in a very famous war picture from 1946 called A Walk in the Sun. Yes. And uh, I've featured that in one of my books, that film, and Hunts actually has a great little uh, number of scenes in that movie, which starred Dana Andrews, Richard Conti, and Lloyd Bridges. Tell tell us a little bit of what you feel about
1: Hunts. Well, a super talented guy. I just just recently showed a friend, um, The Bar Boys Meet the Monsters, as a matter of fact, and when we came out of it, he said he liked the film. He didn't love it. I don't think he's going to be a fan. But he said every of everybody on screen, Hunt's Hall was the guy that made him laugh throughout that screening of that film. And I feel the same. It was a strange thing for me as a child that if you were in a black and white film, I assumed you were long dead by the time I'm watching you in the 70s. And so when he popped up on a Saturday morning show called Ghostbusters which was long before the movie with Forrest Tucker and Larry Storch I was boggled that Hans Hall was still alive of course he was probably 50s 60 at the time maybe and um and then he turned up in a Fred Olin Ray movie called Cyclone in 1987 very brief role running a auto park shop but but he gets a, a in and you know he does some of his shtick and it's a wonderful moment in a film that otherwise, you know, has no other connection to the Bowery Boys. But I think as a as a kid, I didn't understand slips slips of the tongue as much, but his but hunts hall slapstick as Horace Debussy, Jones, Satch. Um so he was always my favorite character as a child. I now appreciate both of them equally. But um you know, what a career. <laughs>
0: Look at that face. I mean, how could that not be a comic face?
1: Right. I mean, if if Walk in the Sun had come just two years later, if it had been made in 48, there's no I doubt there would have been any chance he would have gotten that role, because I think by that time he would have been locked in as Satch. And I don't think that the director of of Walk in the Sun would have let him take that role because he would have been too firmly identified with that comedy side of things. So thank goodness it came when it did, which is right as the Bowery Boys were really getting going.
0: Yeah, we should talk a little bit about young people's programming in those days. I mean, things have changed so radically in the movie business. It seems to me that the youth audience today is the most important audience for studios. Hence, these Marvel movies, DC movies, and every science fiction concept you could come up with to satisfy the kids' audience. Back in the 40s into the 50s, Kids were thrown a bone occasionally and I think the uh, the Bowery Boys was one of
1: those serious bones. I would agree but but they also were meant for adults. I mean I'm you know the, the theaters were full of adults watching these films as well. and I think the programming when they moved to television certainly was putting them on in a period when children were be watching television in that morning early afternoon time frame. Dad's probably out doing something, so he's not commanding the one television in the house. And so the kids are able to watch the Bowery Boys or Evan Costello or whatever's airing. So I think that they started out more as an adult thing that kids could enjoy. And then I believe after they moved to television, everybody kind of programmed them as more children's programming in a way.
0: Sure, sure and the situations they got in were so perfect. I mean, one thing that Leo and Hunt seemed to know was what worked for their characters. And I you know, I I I grew up as an only child, so I love things involving groups of people. I never quite understood that. For instance, one of my favorite movies of the 60s, early 60s, was The Apartment with Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Sure. And I love the fact that it was an office story. It was all about these people working together. The concept of being surrounded by all those people was interesting for me because I later worked mostly freelance. But when I finally went to Showtime in 92, where I worked for 10 years and worked in an office, I was surrounded by people and I enjoyed that. And I think in a way, the Bowery Boys, Abbott and Costello, the Three Stooges on Saturday mornings, they were my family in a way.
1: Absolutely. I could totally see that.
0: I'm not quite sure which film this is from. Does it this look familiar for you?
1: This is one of the scary ones. Um I, it might be monsters. That's John Daner, I believe, right behind you, if I'm not mistaken. You're right. That
0: is John, John Dana. Of course. And
1: um I'm not remembering this this other actor's name off the top of my head, but I certainly know him. Uh I believe he was the uh town doctor in The Thin Man Goes Home, which is one of my favorite roles for him. I've got him right. Um, but we're about, obviously somebody's about to alter Satch's brain yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that it has some crazy effect. Maybe he'll sing like Sinatra. Maybe he'll be able to uh, magnetically you know, pull things to him, set off slot machines. Who knows what what the next experiment will, will give us with Satch.
0: Satch was kind of in a way... Lou Costello of the team. Although I would hardly say that Leo was Bud Abbott. He was much funnier than Bud Abbott. And like we talked about his malapropisms or just the way he ran his group of guys. And he's such a little hustler. And yes, can you, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of these kids from the East side, the dead-end kids? I mean, uh, I think in, in a sense, it was Hollywood's first attempt to talk about that these were not the our gang comedies with the little kids. These were more teenagers and later kids in their 20s. Although I don't know if you can call kids in their at 20s, people in their 20s kids. But uh, can you talk a little bit about what we were, what kind of slice of, of society we were looking at?
1: Yeah, the, the gentleman who wrote Dead End, you know, went through New York and saw that there was kind of a, a sad underbelly of, of these kids who didn't have a lot of positive in their life. Uh, there was a lot going on in the world. And so they were getting into trouble and there was just not a lot of happiness. And so the play reflects that and, and the film, um, they get involved with gangsters and the life of crime you know, in front of them. And so it's a very uh, dramatic uh, play and movie. And it really did address social ills of the time and it was certainly a, a, a mirror being held up to society. And there were, the success of both the play, which ran for two years, and the film reflect that, that it, that it touched a nerve with people. And then when the, when the kids broke out into the other films, the comedy started to come in. But they were still very dramatic in those early Dead End Kent films. Um, yeah, people, this one's a boxing milieu. And when they get into it, um, you know, Slip might have to nearly kill a guy to win the fight or something, and is he going to hit him too hard? And I mean, they, they had they were almost melodramatic there for a while, but I believe that as the comedy bits started to kind of filter in as comic relief from the melodrama, they started to see how people responded to that, and that's where I believe then um, Dorsey and Grippo started to move the entire franchise towards comedy and as soon as they hit 46 and the actual bowery boys the the first one or two has just a hint of that the lingering bits of drama but then they just become full out comedies for probably the last you know the 46 films after the first couple and it was a what a again a, a ground shift to go from the drama of dead end to the comedy of how we boys beat the monsters or or crashing Las Vegas etc
0: it's you yeah. know it's so interesting today how comedy has kind of fallen off the shelf a little bit in film i mean uh we you know I'm, this is close to me right now cuz i'm writing comedy with a partner trying to sell comedy features And people just don't want to read them. Uh, Of course, the whole dichotomy of the movie business right now is you no longer sell a screenplay, you sell a package. So if you have the right director and you have the right actor, maybe, maybe they'll take a look at it, or at least pronounce something. But um, comedy itself uh, and never in the history of Hollywood have there been fewer feature comedies. Now I argue that when you're spending $200 million a piece for these Marvel movies, you don't have a lot of money left over to finance a few original comedies. And then, then, uh, you know, and then we go back to the forties where the birth of the Bowery Boys, people respected comedy a lot more. How do you feel about that?
1: It's absolutely true. I think there's also because of the The world being ready to be offended in some respects, comedy is a very dangerous minefield in some respects, because if your comedy pokes fun at someone, uh, it can be misconstrued as as being hurtful. And so I I think it is difficult in some cases in the modern times to to write a comedy that doesn't offend anyone, because comedy often takes, you know, it, it pokes fun at someone. That's where it stems from. So I do believe that um, that uh, that the film industry is not on the side of comedy at the moment. The other thing about that is television, and it's really with all of the product and content that is made to air streaming on televisions, comedy is, that's where comedy is. Um, and much of these film franchises, like I said, they kind of became television sitcoms uh, after a time. You didn't have Blondie. Across all of those years, uh, Bonnie went to television. And so I, I totally can see. And, and and the other thing about comedies is you generally can't spend $200 million on them. So they're not tentpole films. If I don't know what kind of comedy it would take to, to be that. And the, the studios are really interested in those. They don't want those mid-range films anymore because even though it's a lower risk, they don't bring in the ticket sales that the Marvel movies do so they're more interested in investing the the big money for those tentpole films with those packages as you mentioned rather than taking a risk on something that's only 35 million 40 million still a huge amount of money to be spending on you know a film but nothing compared to 280 million for some of these films being made now
0: that's very true also the rise in marketing costs have really yeah. hurt the mid range movies, you know, it's Absolutely. but I, it's the whole mentality that you have to hit a home run every time, so spend the 200 million, it's just gotten co- totally out of whack. Uh, and I mean, the closest to a comedy film franchise may be Ghostbusters to a certain extent, where you can expect a certain level of comedy, although not as consistently as uh, they would like. Uh, although I liked the last one, I liked Ghostbusters Afterlife, I thought that was clever. And that's not a word I use this a lot when I'm t- I'm, um, I'm talking about comedy. I'm curious about some of the pictures behind you. Uh, you have a very long autograph right behind you. Who is that from?
1: That is Renee Zellweger. Uh, we worked together on a film called Empire Records, and that's actually her very first autograph. She actually inscribed it, saying this is the first time she'd ever been asked to sign a picture. And uh, so I'm very honored to have her very first autograph ever given
0: Renee Zellweger. Interesting that if she had been an actress in the '40s, they would have changed her name in a hot second.
1: Of course, that is one thing that I've been noticing is that the where the studios did that, where anybody who had a name that wasn't basically Joe Smith had to change it. And you see, you know, everybody read their biographies of any Hollywood star of back then, and like you know, Marion Morrison, John Wayne, Archibald Leach, Harry Grant, uh, and now names that are are truly a challenge to like pronounce in some cases and nobody, you know, everybody's fine. We'll, we'll just let everybody keep their own name, which is great. I mean, I'm glad we've had that development. I don't think people need to change their name just to make it easier for people, but it's it's interesting how that has really become a, a, a it's really changed the credits of a film, unlike sure, what you used sure. to see back in the day.
0: I see you've got Elvira up there, of course. Mm-hmm. Talking about the uh, the perfect hostess. Um, oh,
1: absolutely. What and, about uh,
0: what uh, about one down below, uh, underneath Renee, to the to its to your right?
1: There, that is um, Cameron Mitchell and Pamela Ferdin from a film called The Toolbox Murders. Pamela actually signed that for me. Um, not not a highbrow film either, um, but anything with Cameron Mitchell in it, I've always enjoyed his work. So. Uh, delighted to have uh, gotten Pamela to sign that for me.
0: Cameron Mitchell played, I believe that's him as boss Rojack in My Favorite Year.
1: Yes, absolutely. Oh, then now there's
0: a comedy that still plays beautifully.
1: Absolutely. And and what a wonderful moment for him because by that time, Cameron Mitchell unfortunately was relegated to direct-to-video B-pictures. Um, and I call them B-pictures. Roger Corman would slap me. They're not truly B-pictures in that they never played subsidiary to an A-picture in a theater. But that's what we've now, what we term those low-budget genre films that used to go direct to video. And that's what he was doing so that he got another moment in a big Hollywood film like My Favorite Year. Wonderful. Because he's a great performer. And he didn't he deserve to be stuck in those other films, although he made them better than they would have been without him.
0: He actually uh, the very young Cameron Mitchell plays one of the PT boat uh, 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 sailors in They Were Expendable, where he and Marshall Thompson are young PT boat officers. uh, I remember that very vividly. Um,
1: Gorilla at Large was an early one for me. And when they aired that in 3D on television, you remember that in the early 80s? Yeah,
0: yeah, how, do, how do you air wrong. a 3D movie in 3D? Oh, did you pick up like a little thing at the store so you could look through?
1: Yeah, your convenience store had glasses for 50 cents and they were red and blue. So It was the old school red and blue version of the 3D. Uh, Harry Anderson, before Court, hosted in that he came out and told you how to adjust your set to make the red and blue the right tone. And then he fired a uh, a snake-loaded, gun that fired those spring snakes at you in 3d so you could test the effect and then they showed these films and gorilla at large was an early uh you know early days leading role for cameron mitchell with ann bancroft and and some other fine actors and it's you know it's a silly circus mystery thing with somebody a gorilla's killing people or somebody in a gorilla suits killing people kind of thing so a lot of fun Edison
0: raymond burr is it
1: yeah, I believe he is in it. Yeah, yes. It's been a long I long time I've seen it, but I'm pretty sure he is the lion tamer or something like that. That's right.
0: I remember before Leonard Maltin first published his compendium of all the movies that were available, I used to take my scissors and cut the little movie descriptions out of the TV guide, and I'd paste them on a paper to show which movies I had seen. And then, of course, Maltin came out with it, and all of a sudden. We could see all the movies that were, existed, which were tens of thousands. Uh, I miss that. I, I wish Leonard would bring bring back his book. But although I have his 1999 version, it's so thick that it broke in half.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had the same problem. Those last few, the spine you can't handle if you open it up far enough to see those the inner <laughs> columns, the spine breaks immediately. I um I I actually have the honor that I got Leonard Maltin to change a review in that TV movies book. And I faxed it to Paramount uh, for Entertainment Tonight. And I had seen a movie. I moved to North Carolina, and I was watching a a North Carolina filmmaker's films, and he had said that it was a bomb rating and that the crawl at the beginning of the movie says this is a return to clean, decent family entertainment, followed by the lead blowing away half the cast with a shotgun. So I watched the film. He kills nobody with a shotgun. (laughs) So... I faxed Leonard Maltin a little letter and said, you know, to be fair, it is a terrible movie. The bomb rating is absolutely accurate. But really, you're, you're not you're kind of telling a fib there Said he kills nobody with a shotgun. So he actually changed it. And he said, causing the deaths of various bad guys. So that reads differently after probably 93 or 4. Thanks to me.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Leonard Leonard's a friend. He's uh, he wrote. Speaking of fan letters, he wrote my first fan letter. When oh. I did my article for Cinefantastique in 1976 on the making of the Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, wow. My cover story, he um, he sent me a fan letter. It was uh, I still have it.
1: Oh, that is so fabulous. His review of the horror spoof Transylvania 65000 that aired on Entertainment Night remains one of my favorite things I've ever seen. He simply sat and danced to the tune of Pennsylvania 65000. And then when he, when it finally came to the, where they say the words, he said over it, Transylvania 6 5, stinks. I'm Leonard Maltin, Entertainment Tonight. That was the entirety of his review.
0: <laughs>
1: that One of the most marvelous things I have ever seen in my life. I, I adore him. I always have. I bought every copy of that book. Every year he put it out, I would buy the new one. Uh, I would in vain try to go through and mark everything I'd seen. Never made it all the way through one before the next would come out. Like yes, no, it's, absolutely. I adore him. I'm glad that you know
0: him. Leonard taught me that it's, there's, it's impossible for us to see every movie ever made because there's always going to be 10,000. Although I did something recently where I told myself that I would no longer, I have my morning exercise regimen where I do my things Uh, watching a movie. Oh, For years, I would pop in a DVD and watch uh, Three Days of the Condor for the 76th time. I finally realized I was missing all these movies I'd never seen before. And now that we have streaming, there's always something on that we haven't seen. So I'm looking at my wall of DVDs that are collecting a little dust now because I'm now focusing on originals That I have not seen. I just watched a really good Jane Wyman movie the other day. I talked about it in my Facebook uh, review. I watched Johnny Belinda. Oh, yes. Really good movie. Mm -hmm. A really good movie. And for the viewers and listeners who are catching this podcast, take advantage of streaming. There's always something interesting being run in Turner Classic Movies. Thank God it's still with us. Yes. Although it's been on a little bit of life support lately. I'm hoping that it sticks with us.
1: Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I, I have to recommend the watch TCM app if you don't otherwise have Turner Classic Movies on a cable package or something. You can still get that app downloaded to a Roku streaming device or any kind of a streaming device. Uh you may have to jump through a couple of hoops to get the service kind of going with it, but what they have available to you there and you can stream it on demand. Uh I cannot recommend it highly enough. And they even include the uh if the host if it was a host intro when it aired. On the, sh- on the actual channel, they'll include, you can play it with the host intro so you get those extra tidbits from Ben Mankiewicz or whoever is currently sure. And And let's, I've got to throw a shout out for Robert Osborne, another person who loved movies and helped me love movies more, watching him host all those years. Um, I have VHS tapes where I had uh, dvr things and then ran them onto a VHS. And so I'm still working through and I love when one of the tapes comes up and it's one that I take off of PCM. So I get to see a Robert Osborne introduction it's still. Sure. I
0: sure. I got to I got to um spend some time. <laughs> I had a funny story. Um I got married in 1994. And um my uh as a thing, I, I was a publicist in, those, publicist in those days, so I had a good relationship with the trade papers, and often I would send something over the trades and in this case i sent a, i i called up bob because he had that column in the Hollywood reporter because i'd been giving him a number of of exclusives and i said you know i just got married would you put something in the paper about it and uh <laughs> the next day i opened the, the hollywood reporter and there's a great little item about me uh that it says scott rudin got married this past weekend. Oh. <laughs> it's the thought that counts. Of course, every time we see his credit now on a major movie, my wife turns to me and says, My husband is doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> so when funny. you uh when you were you when you were in school, Craig, did you study film? Did you get into it? Or was it were you in a different career altogether?
1: Well, I have a degree in cinema and photography. And thankfully, in addition to the production side of things, which is what that was really geared towards there was a lot of film theory and I actually got to study under a well-known film uh, professor named Tony Williams, uh, out of Southern Illinois university in Carbondale, Illinois. And he has written some, uh, some great pieces on various classic film, uh, people. He was a delightful English gentleman and his class ran three hours on Monday nights and he would talk about a film and then show a film. And, um, He called her Bet Davis instead of Betty. He didn't say Betty as we all did. So he was just a marvelous guy. And it's just been amazing to see uh, his uh, fame kind of grow as he's become even better known than just being a professor at a small university in in Illinois. But yes, absolutely. Studied as much as I could. Um, Always watching every, you know, I've owned every format. My father was an early adopter of technology. So we had a Betamax very early on when they were still like it took two people to move it and put that tiny little tape into the middle of this deck. That's almost the, you know, you could eat dinner off of it because It was so large and VHS not long after that. And you know, now up to Blu-ray, not gone to 4k yet. They haven't gotten me with that one, but, uh, streaming services. So it, it's always been a part of my life and the, st- and the watching has been even more than actual like classroom study or anything like that. Um, uh, written about it as much as I could over the years I started that in my hometown newspaper writing little reviews for things like Splash in the mid-80s Ice Pirates and things like that so the writing is all Ice
0: Ice Pirates but Robert Urich (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) and
0: I actually my first unit publicity job I was sent up to Wyoming to work on an Alan Rudolph thriller called Endangered Species
1: oh that's a great film
0: Great film, Robert Urich, yeah, sure. Joe Beth Williams, Paul Dooley, and uh, I remember just after that he, that he got Ice Pirates. Ro- Robert Urich was a delightful guy, a real hunky hunk, and a yeah. good guy. And I, I, you know, I, I got to know him, and then of course he married Heather Menzies, yes. one of the original Sound of Music kids. Right. Sadly, they're yeah. both gone now, but great, great people.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and I love that he has the record as the most leads in the most different television shows. I believe he still holds that. Um, he he never stopped trying, and whether the show you know went for a while like Vegas or was shorter run like the uh, Love Boat sequel that he would play the captain for. What a, what a terrific talent, and I'm glad he got to make a few movies. And Endangered Species is an unsung gem. That is a fine fine oh, film.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I. I... I still remember the smell of cows. <laughs> <Every
1: day. laughs> oh, oh, oh. I can only imagine. You know that, that you and I actually had a brief encounter in the 90s when you were working for Showtime because I was working for Encore Magazine here, that local entertainment guide you mentioned. And I actually reached out to you because of the Roger Corman Presents series that Showtime was uh, doing. So I actually called Showtime just trying to see if somebody would send me some promotional materials because I wanted to do a feature in Encore about Roger Corman and you were wonderful. And when you, when I got on the phone with you, I asked you if you happened to be the gentleman who wrote the James Bond film book. And that touched off a very nice conversation. Uh, I told (laughs) you how much I envied you for your pictures with Jane Seymour in the car. And and we had a very nice talk, but you were also very nice to send those things to me. So thank you for that. Uh, You know, having been in your world kind of for almost 30 years now, lightly at least. So
0: well that's very kind of you Craig. Amazing. I I love being a publicist. I, to for me being a movie lover all those years and being a film journalist but then getting the opportunity to actually work on the film and the cool thing about being a publicist is that when you're working on in the office the uh they they don't know what you're doing on the set and when you're working on the set they don't know what you're doing on the office so i had a lot of freedom as a yes. pr guy cuz you're basically planning how to promote the film and uh endangered species was a really fun movie i it's funny because when you know i still have this wonderful picture of the bowery boys up in front of us yes. what, what, how much fun could it have been to work with those guys on the set every day you know, I thought,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, it had to be a blast. I would think, um, never heard any bad stories. You know, a few people came through, you, you see every once in a while, uh, somebody on the way up, so to speak, playing one of the the young ladies that slips chasing or something and never heard any reports of anything negative about them. Um, I would assume that although I'm sure the time pressure has probably kept them moving, um, because I doubt that they could waste much time, uh, whatever these shoot were, I, again, I'm thinking a week or two, two tops. Um, and you, you're making a feature film in that time, even one that's only going to run 72, 75 minutes, you are, you are having to really get the, the film into the can. Probably not a lot of retakes. Um, so there may have been a little pressure, but I still feel like they had fun. I, I feel like um, Hans Hall was probably the first to, to cut up and break the tension. At some point, doing something silly, uh, taking a pratfall or doing, you know, something. Sure.
0: Well, one thing's for certain, certain, they they certainly didn't spend a lot of money on sets.
1: No, they did (laughs) not. You kind of wonder, you know, where those, I guess they were standing sets because Louis Sweetshop, you know, had to be a standing set because it was in every one of them, at least briefly, even the ones where they were heading out west or something and, and the rest of the film was somewhere else. But everything was backlot and um, stock shots to establish it and then, you know, just more interior sets again. But they didn't do as much of what the Three Stooges did, where the Three Stooges, Columbia would make some kind of a, like a knight in shining armor movie. And then there would be three Stooges shorts released over the next couple of years where they did that. They would use the sets and the props and things and, and do their shtick. I didn't sense as much of that with with the Bowery Boys that they didn't take advantage of other things being shot and jumping on those sets and such they just seemed to do it. I feel like their production was much more geared around trying to come up with whatever the the plot was going to be or the the gimmick or you know what Satch was going to be able to do for this film I think that's what they devoted all of their energies toward and then just built you know a low budget film around that idea and just zapped it out and got it out into the theater
0: for the for the viewers who are, are listening to us today if you haven't seen a Bowery Boys movie just sit back and pick Saturday as your day and mm-hmm. pop one in I'm sure they're around uh either picking up a D are they available on DVD uh Craig
1: they they are they there are four sets of 12 um they were put on four volumes they were made on demand. Um, So you would, they would only press them when you ordered one. Um, Quality is fine though. Um, They put three to a disc. So the 12 come on four discs mounted. Um, They were not, they were not bargain DVDs, but they also weren't crazy expensive. I think each set probably cost 35 or $40, which is not bad when you're getting 12 films. I mean, you're talking about three or $4 a piece. Um, So yeah, I think they're still probably available. I'm sure Amazon would have some of those sets available. But um, Turner Classic Movies did run them just recently, so yeah. you, may find, you, know, you may find some there at some point. Um, I wouldn't want to send anybody to YouTube to watch them because they are still under copyright, so I wouldn't want somebody to necessarily do that there. But But if you can't find them any other way and you can't afford a DVD set and you really want to see one, there would be a way you could at least watch one. I'm sure there are some uploaded there.
0: Well, this has been this has been terrifically enjoyable, Craig. Uh, it has. We've been we've been having a spirited conversation with Craig Craig Edwards about the about the Bowery boys and the dead end kids and the tough guys and just a wonderful subgenre of comedy that needs to be talked about still, because they provided so many joys to all of us. You've been Absolutely. listening to you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And again, Craig, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, can we, Steve.
0: can we promote anything that you're doing to tell the listeners that you're up to something? Is there anything you'd like to tell them?
1: Well, I uh, I am going to be a special guest at a screening of Empire Records that I worked on and appeared in briefly, uh, April 8th, which is Rex Manning Day from the film, uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, at one of the film's locations. It's, it's a a business called Onset Cinema that screens where films were made. This is the exterior record store from the movie, and the film's being shown inside, and I'm going to do a Q&A and, uh, and talk with people, and uh, if anybody wants an autograph, I can't believe they would, but if they do, I'll sign <laughs> it, So
0: Great. Terrific. Be well.
1: Thank you very much.